You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. There are plenty of people in the Bloomberg newsroom who would tell you that one number matters more than any other in the global economy in 2023, and that's US inflation. We got the latest print this week, and for at least a few hours, the conversation was of little else. What it meant for interest rates, global markets, unemployment. But guess what? US inflation is not the only thing that matters. In fact, the event which might have the greatest impact on the global economy this year may already have happened. And that's Chinese President Xi Jinping's decision to reopen the Chinese economy almost overnight. Short term, that has sent COVID infection rates soaring. It might even weaken the president's position, given how much he has invested in protecting the population from the virus. But if it leads to markedly faster Chinese growth in the second part of this year, we also know it'll push up the price of raw materials and energy again and really complicate the job of cutting inflation in Europe and the US. Our chief global economist, Tom Orlick, has run the numbers on what exactly that might mean for the rest of us. So stick around to hear the results. We're also going to hear from the land of upside-down economics with a report and conversation about Turkey. But first, a quick postcard from Argentina, which had an inflation rate over the course of 2022 of just under 100%. That's the highest rate in the G20 group of economies. And it has plenty of awkward consequences for the economy and for Argentina's people. As our economy and government reporter Patrick Gillespie describes, for tourists, it's also made changing money quite an exercise. I'm standing at the entrance of a Western Union branch in central Buenos Aires, Argentina. The company provides a popular currency exchange service. And at 12 p.m. on a regular summer Thursday, the line is out the door. Inside, the queue is like a United Nations of buzzing tourists speaking German, French, Portuguese, and English while they're waiting to exchange cash. It might look all normal until you take a peek into people's bags. From fanny packs to backpacks and big purses, everyone here is walking out with loads of peso bills in cash. Yeah, the first time I did it, kind of felt like I'm, I'm robbing a bank or so. That was a bit weird. Uh, when, when out of West do you have so much money in your hands? That was Stefan Taberniff, a 28-year-old tourist from the Netherlands. He's fetching money to pay for his next flight with a pile of cash as thick as a brick. 
He's much more experienced now, but having so much cash on hand still leaves him a little unsettled. There's one thing using cash, and the other thing basically having so much, so many notes, right? Like now it's basically a thousand is the highest one you can get, and I just picked up like what a couple hundred dollars and our euros, and that's yeah, that's now this pile of money. Um, just to pay. Argentina is a complex economy with at least a dozen different exchange rates and a labyrinth of currency controls. Those restrictions have created a growing gap between the official exchange rate and all of the other informal exchange rates. So if you go to a bank ATM in Buenos Aires, for example, $1 would get you about 180 pesos at the official rate. But if you go to Western Union, you get about 335 pesos per dollar because the company offers a parallel exchange rate used in financial markets. That's nearly double the amount of money you get going through the traditional banking system. So how did the peso get here? Well, the answer is threefold. First, Argentina's inflation rate is nearing 100%, one of the highest in the world. Second, the government intentionally keeps the official exchange rate low to protect its razor-thin currency reserves. This helps to prevent a major currency crisis and devaluation, which is something the government wants to avoid at all costs, at least until this year's presidential election in October. The last government that allowed a major run on the peso got voted out after just one term in office. And finally, the largest cash bill in Argentina is only 1,000 pesos, worth about $3 today. The government refuses to make larger denomination bills and says it wants to focus on digital payments. But critics say that's just an excuse. They argue that the central bank doesn't want to print a larger denomination bill because it would be an admission that they failed to contain inflation. The peril of this currency crisis has made Argentina both a tourist haven and a laughing stock. At a football match last year, Brazilian fans tore up peso cash bills to mock their Argentine opponents as their team cruised to victory. And a TikTok video went viral in which a Dutch influencer with the handle TravelTomTom added insult to Argentina's injury. Hey Europeans, when you think your inflation is bad, this is Argentina, 70% inflation. This is the biggest bill in Argentina. It's 1,000 pesos and they're worth it only $3. I'm so sorry, Argentina. <laughs> of course, on the ground, it's anything but funny. The number of people living in poverty in Argentina spiked to nearly 40% from 25% just five years ago. A consulting firm called Diagnostico Politico counted about 10,000 protests in Argentina last year. That's the highest number in more than a decade. Inflation galloping at such a fast pace has wiped out paychecks for middle-class Argentines. Lujan Palavocino is a nurse working two jobs who had to move back in with her father so she could save money for her son. I can barely save money. It's hard. Everything is so expensive. Prices shut up. A pair of shoes is 40,000 pesos, and as nurses, the most we make is 120,000 or 130,000 pesos a month. So a pair of shoes is half my salary. 
over the horizon is this year's presidential election. A new president could lift all the currency controls so that there's no gap between exchange rates. Still, it's not clear the official peso rate will be getting stable anytime soon. Economists surveyed by Argentina's central bank see $1 being worth 624 pesos by the end of 2024. That's versus the official rate now of 180 pesos per dollar. Many believe a major currency devaluation is inevitable at some point. So no matter who wins the presidential race, you can still bet that cash will be king in Argentina, and you will always find exchange houses shouting cambio or exchange on the streets of Buenos Aires. In Buenos Aires, I'm Patrick Gillespie for Bloomberg News. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Well, I happen to know that quite a few economic students listen to this podcast, God help them. In fact, my teenage son has even been encouraged to listen, though he seems to have resisted so far. And if they take Monetary Policy 101, they'll be taught that if a country has a problem with inflation, it needs to raise interest rates, increase the cost of money. Now, the Argentine Central Bank has done that. I mean, it's true with the presidential election coming up in October. The authorities are a bit less keen to raise rates. But the official interest rate is already at 75%. Now, if we go to Turkey, inflation's also in the high double digits there, but the official interest rate is only 9%. And the central bank has cut rates significantly in 2021 and 2022. This reflects not the economics of textbooks, but the economics of President Erdogan. 
central bank governors who've disagreed with this policy over the past few years haven't lasted very long in the job. Well, Bloomberg's economist covering Turkey used to work at the central bank. And in a minute, I'll ask her what it's like to be tearing up the rules of economic policy on a daily basis. But first, a taste of what it's like to be in Turkey from our economy and government reporter, Beryl Ackman. God willing, inflation will be low from now on. Therefore, the 50% minimum wage raise is a number that will easily help people get by. We have solved inflation. That was a Turkish finance minister, Nurettin Nebati. In an interview last week, he celebrated inflation's downward trend and said his government had solved the fastest growth in prices in over two decades. Trouble is, inflation's still running around 65%. Compare that to the US and the EU, where consumers are grumbling about inflation that's in the high single digits. I'm Beri Lakman, an economy reporter for Bloomberg based in Turkey, where basic kitchen staples like milk or eggs have become luxuries, and where prices have become so unanchored that it's hard to tell what's expensive anymore and what the normal price is. On a recent Sunday, I went to get coffee at the nearest Starbucks to my house in the Turkish capital Ankara. Because of the rise in electricity costs, we have stopped using a refrigerator. I receive a 2,000-3,000 lira electricity bill every month. That is the voice of a flower shop merchant, who's asked me to omit his name to avoid any trouble at his workplace or with the authorities. He told me earlier that his landlord increased the workplace's rent by almost 200%. I chat a bit with him and I comment that despite high inflation, it looks like business as usual on the outside. Cafes and restaurants are filled, shopping malls are crowded. For many Turkey watchers, that is a strange part, that life feels normal in many ways. Pointing at the coffee cup I'm holding, he tells me that people need to socialize and have fun, inflation or not. They say Starbucks are always crowded. What's the guy supposed to do? One would go crazy. It's a mortal world. Inflation is a problem pretty much everywhere around the globe. But Turkey had double-digit inflation even before the war began. The situation in Ukraine just made things way worse. Economic orthodoxy says that when inflation spikes, central banks should raise interest rates to cool the economy, reduce demand for goods and services, and lower prices. But as other top bankers rushed to raise their interest rates, Turkey did the opposite. From August through November last year, the Turkish central bank cut rates. The benchmark rate now stands at 9%. When adjusted for inflation, which is 65%, this makes Turkey have one of the deepest negative real rates, meaning money is extremely cheap. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the country's long-serving leader, has a big hand in Turkey's policy. I told you we would lower the interest rates to single digits. And we did. It will continue like this from now on. They say inflation is like this and that. Don't worry, that too will fall. President Erdogan is hardly alone in preferring to keep borrowing costs low. But the president argues that lower rates will bring down inflation. We have yet to see this theory validated in real life. And while most nations are trying to slow their economies a bit to cool inflation, Erdogan is boosting spending and raising pay for minimum wage earners. It's been dubbed the Turkey economy model. We'll become one of the fastest growing countries in the world. For now, Turkish citizens are hurting. 
Farouk, who owns a corner store in a quiet street near Ankara Central Kızılay Square, says dairy has become unaffordable. Temel gıda maddeleri, özellikle süt ürünleri. Essential food items, for example, dairy products have become incredibly expensive, extremely expensive. We compromise from ourselves. Our preferences have shifted and we try to make some of them ourselves. Because the money we earn does not compensate for our purchasing power, we try to save more. Many economists think Turkey needs an urgent policy U-turn, and that the current policy format is unsustainable. Turkey's elections are expected to take place in about five months, and that's why President Erdogan is fixated on economic growth. But Erdogan and his AK Party are facing a serious challenge from a six-party opposition alliance amid growing discontent over high living costs. The latest polls are said to suggest Erdogan has a high chance of getting re-elected, but his party may cede power. Turkey's finance minister said the nation will keep its policy of low interest rates, regardless of what happens in the election. Meantime, the Turkish people are desperate for something, anything, to ease the skyrocketing prices. Ertan, who works at a stationery shop in Ankara, is struggling to provide for his family. We cannot get by. Work with minimum wage, look after two kids, look after the household, pay rent, it's impossible. What we are doing is just breathing. I asked Ertan what items he has the most trouble paying for. The list keeps growing. First food, then clothing. Before, we used to go out to dinner once or twice a month. Now it's maybe every six months, and it's even rare. I'm Beri Lakman for Bloomberg News. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. (laughs) 
So as promised, we will dig into the upside-down world of Turkish economic policies now and broaden things out to talk about what's going to happen to inflation everywhere with Bloomberg's Turkey economist, Selva Besiki, joining from Ankara, and our chief global economist, Tom Orlik, who's with me here this week in New York. Welcome, both of you. Uh, Selva, thank you so much. You worked for several years at the Turkish Central Bank before we helped you to escape, we like to think. Just sort of on a personal note, is it difficult for officials uh, at the central bank to, to stick with these unorthodox policies, do you think? Yes and no. There are still very good technocrats at the bank who produce analysis based on orthodox economic views. But the Monetary Policy Committee caters to the demands of the political leadership. The low interest rate policy, of course, comes at the cost of weak lira and high inflation. And the bank has to resort to all these alternative tools uh, to lessen the negative feedback on both. That only works partially and pushes the economy into overregulation. And I guess the question that lots of people ask is why there hasn't been a bigger crisis in Turkey with them following uh, these policies now for several years. People, you know, things are tough in Turkey. I mean, we've we've heard that. But it, it, people have been expecting there to be a, a tipping point, a sort of moment of truth just doesn't seem to come. Mm, yeah, especially when we think of the very high external financing needs of the economy. I'll just give you one number to illustrate the external debt that is due within a year accounts for a fifth of GDP. And the reserves coverage of this debt is less than 60%. So as you said, what is stopping uh, this crisis from coming? Two things. The central bank has been intervening uh, in stealth interventions into currency markets, uh, which we calculate to be at around 100 billion US dollars January through October uh, last year. This in itself, of course, adds to fragilities and takes the net reserves into even deeper negatives. There's also a second point. It's this money flows, the mystery money flows into the country under net errors and emissions. Now, these are flows that normally would be small statistical discrepancies under the balance of payments. But for Turkey, they are at 22 billion US dollars. In other words, they finance about half of the current account deficit. Um, the central bank thinks its currency inflows from deposits accounts uh, held abroad. A more likely explanation, however, is offered even by the Minister of Finance, actually, um, cash flows from Russia. Mm. So just to sort of unpick that a little bit, the reason why you'd expect Turkey to have a crisis is that it's dependent on borrowing from the rest of the world to cover the, the gap in its um, external balance. And the central bank has been sort of propping up the currency, spending lots of foreign reserves uh, on doing that. Um, and despite, and it doesn't have enough of those reserves, but somehow there's some sort of secret money coming into the country, which makes the numbers add up. Is that broadly what's happened? Yeah. So the secret money coming in is definitely, you know, most of it is uh cash flows from Russia. There's this other factor to consider, though. The central bank's reserves are in negative, so how do they even intervene? Very, very valid point. Um, the central bank has enhanced its sources of reserves since the beginning of last year. They are now tapping into um, foreign currency revenues of exporters. You have to convert 40% of your revenues through the central bank and give the, all the uh, effects to the bank. So there's sort of creative bookkeeping and also a lot of um, 
uh, into sort of forcing the hands of exporters and taking some of the money they're earning abroad. They're lucky in a sense that you've got quite a lot of Russians who are looking to shelter money from sanctions. Absolutely. And um, there's also the other fact that for a couple of years now, um, the real estate market has been quite um, vibrant with foreign investors coming in. And that has been one major area for the Russians uh, to come and claim residency here um, and perhaps even apply for citizenship through uh, property requirement. Um, It used to be that uh, Turkey's southern neighbors, so Iran and Iraq uh, nationals used to spearhead the number one um, investors in the property market. But since the conflict in uh, or the war in uh, Ukraine, uh, now that number one position is uh, held by Russians. And you have a very distinguished career as, a, as an economist. And I guess we wouldn't have expected to be talking about mystery flows and the, the geopolitics of money coming in from Russia. I mean, as an economist sitting in Turkey, you know, what what do you think is going to happen? Do you think there'll be a reversal in these policies uh, after the election this year? Uh, so, I mean, for the economic students who are listening, we know that fighting inflation, um, the interest rate is the main course and all the other policies are just side dishes. Without the anchor from the policy rate, there's only so much we can expect from these alternative tools that the central bank currently seems to be resorting to. So, yeah, um, even the so-called Turkey economy model was supposed to boost the economy uh, on four goals, um, investments, high exports, uh, currency account surplus, and uh, stronger lira, weak, uh, lower inflation. It has failed on all four of these goals in the year that it's been, uh, it's been applied. The central bank's reserves are below standard safety levels. There seems to be room for interventions until May this year. Um, that is probably one of the reasons why the current political leadership is considering pulling up elections from June to May. <laughs> After that, um, policymakers could either continue on this road with capital restrictions or they will have to do a policy reversal, as you say. Uh, we see the second option as a more likely outcome at the moment, regardless of the outcome of the elections. And just briefly, I mean, what do you think the economy is going to look like in a few years' time? What's the long-term impact of this period of unorthodox policy going to be? Well, whoever is going to be in charge of the economic situation has a tight time ahead. Um, It's a really tight rope-walking kind of situation. Um, As you said, Turkey is a net energy important um, usually runs a currency account deficit. So getting portfolio investments is really going to be critical. And that requires a little bit of more long-term uh, looking, um, rebuilding the institutional tear, uh, which is really going to take a long time. Selva, thank you so much. Tom Orlick, just broadening this out, we've had two pieces uh, from countries that have got pretty much the worst of the global inflation problem at the moment, Argentina and Turkey. Um, Closer to home, US, Europe, inflation does seem to be coming down. But of course, a critical question is how fast does it come down? And where does that leave policies for central banks and interest rates next year? What, what, What are you currently thinking? So globally, Stephanie, we think inflation peaked at around 10% in the third quarter of 2022. Um, And by the end of 2023, we think it will have come down to around 5%. Um, 
Now, of course, that global average is being skewed up by some of the countries you've just been discussing, countries like Turkey and Argentina, which don't account for a big share of the global economy, but where inflation is just so sky high that it's dragging up the global averages. If you take those out of the picture and focused on the big advanced economies, the United States, the euro area, you've got inflation which peaked at a slightly lower level in 2022 and is going to come down a little bit more over the course of 2023. Um, now, why is inflation going to come down? Um, two big forces at work. Firstly, goods prices. Um, during the pandemic, we had supply chain snarls, uh, and we had stimulus-driven demand, and both of those things supercharged demand for goods, pushing goods prices higher. That is now unwinding. Secondly, energy. Of course, the big story in 2022, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and all that meant for energy prices. Energy prices rocketed higher in 2022. Now they've come a long way down from their peak. Why isn't inflation falling further? Um, well, the story there is really a story about labor markets, which are very tight, wages, which are rising very quickly, and so service prices, which are sticky. And it's that combination of falling goods prices, energy prices, um, but service prices, which are staying persistently high, which mean inflation is going to come down quite a lot over the course of 2023, but still, at least in the United States, stay above the comfort zone of the central bank. I started the programme by sort of giving a hint of some of the research that you've just uh, brought out with the team about how China reopening could change this picture, because it, it could quite significantly uh, change the outlook for global commodity prices. And then I guess that complicates the story for inflation more generally. Yeah, that's right. Um, so um, in 2008, um, 2009, in the global financial crisis, um, the problem for the world was weak growth. And China rode to the rescue with an enormous stimulus, boosting global demand. In 2022, uh, the problem for the world was high inflation. Um, and China, in a strange sort of way, helped out again, but this time by not running a stimulus. Indeed, China's COVID zero policies, which kept China's supply chains, China's factories open, but crimped Chinese demand, probably contributed to lessening global inflation in the year just past. Now, in the year ahead, China is reopening, um, and that raises the risk that China's economy is going to come roaring back. Good news for China's 1.4 billion citizens, uh, but potentially adding an additional impetus to global inflation. Um, now, we've done the calculations. We've looked at the relationship between uh, Chinese growth, commodity prices, and global inflation. Um, and our best estimate, and it really is an estimate at this point, because there's just so much uncertainty about how China's reopening is going to play out, but our best estimate is that China is going to accelerate from around 3% growth in 2022 to, to above 5% growth in 2023. And that's going to add close to a percentage point to global inflation. And if you saw even faster growth, I mean, things have been moving on the ground so much faster than anyone expected in terms of the reopening. I mean, of course, that has that means soaring infection rates in the short run and potentially some supply chain issues in the short run, as we know we can see that uh, factories and uh, are sometimes are, are taking measures to try and um, get control of the virus themselves. Um, but assuming that infections um, 
work their course through the economy, could we see faster growth than the 5% you've just talked about? And what would that mean for inflation? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Stephanie. I mean, the picture in China in 2023 is not just going to be a boom, right? Um, indeed, the end of 2022 and the start of 2023 are probably going to be really weak for Chinese growth, um, precisely because COVID infections are sweeping the country. Uh, and so people are self-isolating. They're staying at home to try and stay healthy. The rebound, we think, comes towards the end of the first quarter and really picks up the pace heading into the second quarter. Um, now, could that rebound be even stronger? Could we be looking at Chinese growth not of 5% plus something this year, but perhaps 6% plus something this year? I think absolutely yes. Um, the end of COVID zero is a significant one-off boost. We're also seeing Chinese policymakers reverse course on their property policy, allowing a bit more demand, a little more, bit more finance to come into the all-important property sector. We're seeing them ease back on their uh, regulatory crackdown on private sector entrepreneurs. We're seeing them promise to do a bit more in terms of fiscal stimulus. All of these things together could well add an additional impetus to China's growth. And if we see China's growth in 2023 move from that 5% handle to that 6% handle, then the impetus for global inflation will be that much higher. Now, we're looking at uh, the start of the year. We've also got the World Economic Forum coming up next week. Um, this is the kind, the time of year where you have endless things, certainly if you're me, coming into your inbox with forecasts about what's going to happen in the markets, where you should be putting your investments. Luckily, neither of us get paid according to whether we can predict what will happen to equities or bonds, thank goodness. Um, but a lot of those debates about what kind of year this is going to be in financial markets come down to what kind of year it's going to be for inflation and whether, you know, at the end of 2023, inflation is basically under control or whether we find actually we've got at least another year of tough work against inflation still to go. Where do you stand on that? Do you think that this is going to be a bit tougher than people are expecting, this job of, t of bringing inflation down? Or do you think that, you know, broadly by the end of this year will be done? So it's a really interesting question, Stephanie. Um, for the last couple of years, um, the big mistake economists have made um, is in failing to predict how high and how persistently high um, inflation would be. In 2023, um, I think we've got an exciting new opportunity. Um, we've got an opportunity to be wrong in both directions. Um, so it's entirely possible that US labor markets will stay hot and wages will continue to rise quickly. Um, and inflation will certainly come down from that 10% level to a much lower level, but it will stay sticky at much higher than the Fed and other big central banks are comfortable with. Um, it's also possible that the tightening which the Fed and others have injected into the system over the course of 2022 is going to start kicking in and we're going to see economies weakening much more quickly. We've got a recession penciled in for the United States in the second half of 2023. And if that happens, you've got the goods price deflation, you've got the energy price deflation, and you've got less pressure from wages. If that happens, perhaps inflation disappears as quickly as it appeared. Masterful fence sitting there from our chief economist, Tom Warlick. Tom, thank you so much. And Selva Basiki uh, in uh, Ankara. Thank you. 
That's it for Stephanomics, and we will be in Davos next week for the World Economic Forum, so look out for some special material coming from down the mountain. In the meantime, please rate us wherever you get this podcast and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You should also be following at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Yang Yang, Summer Sadi and Magnus Henriksen. With special thanks to Patrick Gillespie, Carolina Milan, Beryl Ackman, Borhan Yuksekash, Selva Baha Baziki and Tom Orlik. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.